most of the people who are running Russia today were young adults when the Cold War ended. And so I can imagine that they, I, I, I bet you that every single one of them has a personal moment of feeling humiliated that lives with them until this day. Welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security Podcast. I am El Stragelis, a sophomore political science and psychology major and an ND International Security Center undergraduate fellow. And I'm Elizabeth Scherf, an ND International Security Center undergraduate fellow studying business analytics and economics. Today, it is a distinct honor to welcome Ms. Carmen Medina, a retired senior, senior federal executive with 32 years experience in the intelligence community, who is a recognized national and international expert on intelligence analysis, strategic thinking, diversity of thought, and innovation and entrepreneurs in the public sector. Ms. Medina was part of the executive team that led the CIA's analysis directorate. In her last assignment before retiring, she oversaw the CIA's Lessons Learned program and led the agency's first efforts to address the challenges posed by social networks, digital ubiquity, and the emerging culture of collaboration. She was a leader on diversity issues at the CIA, serving on equity boards at all organizational levels and across directorates. She was the first CIA executive to conceptualize many IT applications now used by analysts, including blogs, online production, collaborative tools, and Intellipedia, a project she personally greenlighted as a senior executive. She began using, in 2005, social networking and blogs to reach her diverse workforce. Upon her retirement from CIA, she received the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. Ms. Medina, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much. We want to start by giving our listeners a chance to get to know you and learn about your exciting life story. You have a storied career at CIA. What originally drew you to the mission and what specifically drew you to analyst work? Wow. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people assume when you work at the CIA that that was your goal from day one. It was never my goal. Uh, my goal or my assumption, because I was a debater in high school and college, was that I was going to be a lawyer. And then I decided, I started meeting law school students and decided that I wasn't like them. And so the only other thing I was interested in was the entire world. The fact that there were so many cultures and it was so varied. I went to Georgetown and Georgetown is a school where the CIA is uh, uh, recruits often. And I got hired for a summer job and they asked me to stay on and I did. Uh, I, I very quickly really enjoyed the mission. Uh, you know, what we do at CIA, if you're an analyst, and there's a lot of misconceptions about this, but basically what we do is that we think and imagine on behalf of national security. And the whole thinking thing really appealed to me. Uh, you know, I, the kind of an inflection point in my career was the early 90s when the internet came along. And I realized that the internet was going to be a really big thing. It was going to change how all organizations did their work. And I know it's hard to even realize that or appreciate this now or believe it. But back then, this was a question of heated debate. So, you know, the way people are thinking about artificial intelligence and chat GPT now is kind of the way people thought about the internet back then, but it was worse. Because at least with now with artificial intelligence, you can 
think about it in the context of, wow, the internet changed everything. Is this going to change everything too? You know, you've got at least that reference point. So um, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, trying to persuade the agency that they had to come to grips with digital technology. So, you know, thinking about how organizations have to change relative to their external environment is a real theme in my career. And then kind of the other theme is what is good thinking? How do we think well? How do you arrange or facilitate good thinking? And the importance of having diverse thinking styles in your organizations so that you can really um, cover all the bases. Yeah, so how did kind of this, the introduction of the internet tie into, you know, what you knew as good thinking and how did you kind of want to persuade the agency to take on the power of the internet and what kind of were your points in the potential that it had to transform your work? Before the internet, information was uh, scarce. <laughs> there were, right, there were three TV channels four if you counted PBS, five if you were lucky enough to live in a market where there was an independent station. And the information flow was limited to whatever newspaper was in your community and whatever magazines you subscribed to. That was it. And uh, one of the you know many things that uh, helps good thinking is when you have access to all the information. And uh, pre-internet, and even now during internet, frankly, but it's better, pre-internet, we, particularly at the CIA, and almost everyone that thought about the world, thought about it in a kind of limited way. The world is sort of run by elites and, and all, all those things. And harnessing the power of all this new information, I thought, was going to be critical for the CIA to understand the world as it is becoming, because that is our job is to, as an analyst, is to understand the world as it is becoming, to give our policymakers the best opportunity to make the best decisions possible. That's that's what we do. And so the internet was, you know, if, if we did not adjust to the internet and, and begin to incorporate the, 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 this dynamic information flow, we were going to become irrelevant. Do you think the same premise applies to incorporating diversity of thought and diversity into the workplace? Do you think I that do. And I, you know, I think that um, you have to have, you know, there's many, many dynamics at play in the world. There are citizens who are growing up in the global South, let's use that term. There is no particularly good term, by the way, to use, uh, but we'll use the term global South. And um, they are, they don't, many of them don't see the advantages of capitalism because they never have personally experienced them. Uh, and um, it's very hard for someone uh, from Chicago who grew up in a typical middle-class American home to really understand how someone in uh, 
Mumbai, India uh, views the world. And so on issues of economics, on issues of the environment, on, on issues of social dynamic, all of these are issues that how you think about them is highly tied into your thinking style and your own background. And if we can't find people to work for the CIA who can't be empathetic with all of these different viewpoints, then we're, we're not gonna appreciate them. We're not gonna detect them. And we're going to mislead our policymakers as to how the world actually operates. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I was from outside of Chicago, I'm from Chicago. So there's definitely a kind of a limited scope of what we understand um, just in terms of our experiences and understanding. Well, one of the things I think is so interesting about Chicago is just the geography of it, how flat it is. <laughs> it is very flat, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? And, and, you know, that's actually, I think, a, minor, a minority uh, situation in the world to live in a completely flat place. Definitely <laughs> is, yeah. Um, okay, we're going to segue into uh, um, talking about you as a manager of CIA mm -hmm. and um, you're a manager for most of your career. Is there a typical analyst persona or character trait you saw with your employees or was there a preferred one, especially looking at the difference between the role of regional and then issue analysts? Um, yeah, you know, analysts uh, stereotypically are described as introverts and, and they tend to be introverts. There was a joke uh, at the... Uh, uh, agency that how could you tell the extroverts at the office party? And the joke was that they were the ones looking at other people's shoes. So in other words, the kind of the, the idea is they were just looking down at their own shoes, but if they were an extrovert, they actually looked at other people's shoes. Mm -hmm. Stupid joke. Uh, but, uh, they, you know, they, they tended to be introverts they tended to, uh, to be people who were sort of materialistic in their thinking, empirical. So they were looking for facts and figures. Uh, and I think as a general rule, huge oversimplification, they sometimes did not pay enough attention to sort of passion and emotion when it existed in a society. So early on, one of the first things that happened in my career was the Iranian revolution. And that's, that occurred in 1979. So I had been with CIA one year with that, when that occurred. And you can say that one of the things that we didn't get right was the passion and commitment of the different segments of the Iranian population that supported the revolution. Um, the, um, so that kind of, you know, typical, almost linear way of thinking, you know, A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, is, is scientific, you might say, but humans and their behavior aren't that scientific, you know? And so uh, that was, I think, uh, uh, a strong uh, bias that they had. Um, we would hire all sorts of people, they had all sorts of backgrounds. 
you know, PhDs in medieval history, biologists, chemists, journalists, political scientists, language specialists, psychologists. I think a, a really, you know, nowadays when I talk to people thinking about uh, a career in the intelligence community, I, I get very excited if they tell me that they're taking courses in neuroscience. Because, you know, understanding how our brain works is really important if we want to ensure good ideas. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I was a, I would say a generalist my entire career. I worked on many different parts of the world and eventually became much more interested in good thinking as opposed to any particular part of the world. And, and there are some people at the agency like me, sort of generalists. I, I got kind of bored working on a particular issue for more than three or four years. Other people, that's their whole goal in life is to become the, the world's great expert on China or Russia uh, or international economics or the international energy situation. And the agency needs both types, right? We have to have both types of people. Most definitely. So you kind of laid out the persona of an analyst there and talked about the scientific and very linear thinking. But um, we know that nuanced thinking and understanding the human psyche definitely help in the intelligence world. And we know that you're a big proponent of reading. Um, so how do you think reading and books help promote nuanced thinking? And is there a specific type of book or genre that you think um, helps promote this the most? You know, I had a conversation with a with an important policymaker in the Bush administration. And he said, you know what's what what's wrong with your analysts? Why they don't get things right? And I go, well, tell me. And he goes, they don't read enough fiction. Well, that was that was like the last thing I thought he was gonna tell me. But that was that was kind of an important point he made. And his and and when you get right down to it, international affairs is about understanding how nations, which are groups of people, okay, you know, sometimes you, I, 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 when I was at Georgetown, I took an international relations course where the textbook, I, I, I never mentioned a single country. The textbook was all about, you know, multipolar, bipolar, and it was all just a level of abstraction that I thought was ridiculous and wrong. Every country is a group of people. And now we know, the last 30 years have shown clearly, that you don't need to be a nation to influence world events. There's sort of groups of non-state actors, groups of people independent of nations can influence world events. So when you read uh, fiction, biographies, uh, in-depth histories, you can really... Uh, particularly if you're kind of an introverted analyst from Chicago, all of a sudden you're exposed to this whole different panoply of personalities. And I think that that is, uh, is really important. And you understand too, you know, things aren't black and white, you know, it isn't good guys and bad guys. It's a lot of sort of okay gals making mistakes, doing the best they can. And so the, the point behind reading is, you know, any one of us is going to have a limited experience, set of experiences in our lives. And so reading fiction, biographies, 
is what allows you to learn about and therefore be better able to empathize with all the, the multitudes of other experiences that exist in the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And kind of building off of that, if you're an analyst and like you said, you're reading as to find a way to empathize with people from different cultures that you haven't experienced, um, to what extent is is reading able to compensate for your kind of limited scope of understanding that you have in a specific area, especially when, you know, you haven't been to, you know, Africa and you don't know right. exactly what the population or the average individual is thinking or feeling on a daily basis. Right. So I think it's important to, and I always stress this, is to read the the literature, see the movies, watch the TV shows made by people in those countries. So right now, the Nigerian film industry is huge in sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, it may have impact uh, outside of sub-Saharan Africa. I just don't know. So it's it's like rivals Bollywood now in terms of uh, it, the, it, how much film is being generated. And uh, I would think that watching those and, and reading those stories will make life in that country vivid to you in a way that it will never be vivid reading dry intelligence reports. Um, I, you know, it, uh, social media, of course, now offers you an opportunity to kind of dip into what's going on in, uh, uh, you know, social media in a particular part of the world, but you're kind of limited in how much you can do. It's just like you're sipping, you're trying to boil the ocean, for mm -hmm. example. It's, it's, it's impossible. Um, but I think all of that, it, you know, analysts have to do that to, to understand, you know, one of the things I like to do when I'm in a different country, I like to turn on the TV, but I like to watch the commercials. Not so much the shows, but the commercials, because I want to see, okay, what are people being sold you know what's what's what 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 is aspirational in that society, right? And the other thing I like to do is when I walk around, I just like to notice how much graffiti there is, because graffiti kind of tells you something about a society. Uh, so you know, I like to think of myself as the analyst of little things. Uh, I always pay attention to little things because all big things start as little things. So it's useful to to see them before they explode, right? So on that note of explosion, um, Russia's aggression against Ukraine is definitely exploding at the moment. It's a very <laughs> clever segue, very <laughs> nice. And we know that you were just talking about cultural character studies to help us understand the persona of people within a society. So you can most definitely apply this to Russia. So thinking about right. Russia, how do you think the US is at ex um, understanding the Russian psyche? I don't think, I, I mean, there are obviously a lot of people in the U.S. who've devoted their lives to studying Russia, but I don't think that we, uh, you know, on average really understand what the Russians are like. I remember it was Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who said, 
couple of decades ago, you know, that economic development sort of will lift everyone into sort of a new world of, of insight, a new condition of insight, pointed out that countries with McDonald's have never fought each other. Well, they, they, they did it last year. They may even have done it earlier if I, if I, if I could think back. Uh, you know, maybe there was a McDonald's in Georgia when Russia invaded Georgia, for example. So I think that um, we have, I think one of the mistakes, and I'm guilty of this, I, 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 I tend to be an optimist. One of the mistakes we made is that we thought once the benefits of capitalism were, you know, uh, deployed in Russia, that they would, you know, the scales would fall from their eyes and they would l learn to love the the Western capitalist system, but Russia throughout its history has just been schizophrenic in, in its uh, self-identity, whether it sees itself as European or it sees itself as Asian. And I have actually been on a kick recently watching a lot of YouTube videos uh, coming out of Russia, documentaries that are being translated where they're presenting their history I think alarmingly as this, you know, it's the West who has kept us down and we have to reassert our, our Russianness. So when you, you know, I've always enjoyed Russian literature a lot. I mean, they were one of the early masters of the novel. Uh, most recently, I've been reading this book, uh, The Story of a Life by a, a Russian author who is like a beloved Russian author, but I'd never heard of him before. And what was interesting about it is that he grew up in the Ukraine. And so this book that was written in the 1950s, but he's talking about the period before World War I, it's his memoirs. He's already making clear how tenuous the relations between Ukraine and Russia were and how important the Ukrainian identity was to, to the people in Kyiv, for example. So uh, I just thought you know, it was, it's quite interesting. I have a, another good friend uh, who's actually was born in Russia, in Siberia, and immigrated to the U.S. Uh, as part of the Jewish Russian-Jewish immigration to the U.S. And he, he keeps saying, you know, you guys just do not understand the Russian psyche. There's an attitude towards suffering, for example, that's different in the Russian Orthodox Church uh, than, than how we think about it in the West. Like in the West, suffering is to be avoided, but in, in again, huge oversimplification, but in, in the Russian Orthodox society, suffering is somehow noble and necessary. And I, I just think it's so interesting how quickly the Russian Orthodox Church reasserted itself in Russia after the collapse of communism, which which tells you that it, it never really went away, right? Most definitely. So you were talking about how the U.S. Didn't, doesn't really understand the Russian psyche and about how there's a really big um, focus on suffering. So from your personal opinion, when do like Russians feel most secure and like what emotions that Russians might feel are like maybe the most dangerous? Well, golly, uh, well, the most dangerous emotion to 
invoke in anybody is this feeling of being humiliated. Embarrassment is like the precursor to humiliation. And I don't know if you two who have ever felt, I'm sure you have felt embarrassed. It's a horrible feeling. And you know what I, <laughs> what I hate about that feeling is that it'll come back. You think you've put it to bed, but it'll something will remind you of that event. And you'll it'll it'll come back to you, right? So humiliation. I mean, the Russians. If you read the history of the Russian uh, nation, one they they believe they were the their their narrative is that they were the saviors of saviors of Christianity. And that uh, they believe they are destined to be the saviors of, of civilization, really. And so that entire uh, cold, the way the Cold War ended is such a humiliation to them, particularly to the intellectuals. It's only been like 30 years. So most of the people who are running Russia today were young adults when the Cold War ended. And so I can imagine that they, I, I, I bet you that every single one of them has a personal moment of feeling humiliated that lives with them until this day. And um, it's hard, right? Because, you know, the answer they have to find their way uh, isn't a very satisfying answer, but it's probably the only permanent answer to the situation. They That society has to evolve in a way that um, allows them to stop invading other countries. And, you know, it has happened in history. It happened in Germany. It happened in Japan. You know, it happened in South Africa. Societies can turn the corner. But when you think back, it's usually self-directed more than it is imposed more than it is imposed by somebody else okay um so we, we focused a lot on russia we're kind of gonna turn to another great power china how do you think analysts can understand you know the the chinese psyche and additionally do you think that feeling of embarrassment is also kind of present. It is, isn't it? It is. It is. It is the feeling of of national and personal humiliation. The China's, I mean, China's claim to cultural superiority on this planet is uh, arguably correct. I mean, you know, I mean, they have the longest persistent culture. Uh, many of the great advances. In American, in uh, world culture and science, uh, either happened first in China, or you know, if it happened in the West, it was also happening simultaneously in China. Um, you know how they figured out agriculturally how to feed all those people uh, is is amazing. Uh, so, you know, and then you know they. The, the colonizing Western governments show up and start carving up China and, you know, and the British Empire starts, you know, uh, imposing and, and marketing opium to China. I mean, it's, it's a really incredible history. And, uh, and then the other thing that I don't think we fully understand is 
the strong cultural ties among the Chinese. The, and, and, you know, the China, Chinese are not monolithic. I'm not an expert on China, but there are different groups among the, the Chinese as well. Um, but understanding all of that is, I think, a real challenge for a Westerner. So I think what's, you know, I began to pay attention to the rise of China right around the year 2000. So when I started reading things that made it clear to me that China was going to emerge in just a decade or two as an incredible economic power, and uh, and I became concerned about it. Uh, and and what concerned me most was that traditionally the Western diplomatic system has been based on on kind of a set of Western values influenced by Greek philosophers and you know Rome traditions and the Judeo-Christian heritage. All of that is part of how we think. That's the moral compass and the lens that we use to decide issues. But now when China and Asia are going to be like, I don't know, 75% of the world population, something like that. If you definitely, if you count India, uh, although probably we should not think of them in the same way because it's two very different cultures. Uh, so will, will this Western way tradition of problem solving still be seen as the right way to solve problems? Because it's, not necessarily in the Asian tradition. The Asian tradition is Confucian, Taoism, community. There's just a lot of different fundamental assumptions about how society should work that are at the heart of Chinese culture. So, you know, if you think the Russians are kind of orthogonal to Western culture, well, the Chinese are, are way more so, right? Which is going to make it Really, really uh, interesting. Pure, you know, you guys are going to have a very interesting adulthood, right? Exciting. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Something to look forward to. So I know earlier you were kind of talking about how fiction reading helps us understand the human psyche, but if China is so far removed from a Western perspective, do you think Western fiction can still help analysts understand, um, like a Chinese? Um, psyche, or do you think that? Well, no. You really you have to try to read Chinese fiction as it's translated. So, okay. 10, 15 years ago, a Chinese science fiction novel won the uh, prize for best science fiction novel in the world. Is it the Hugo? I, I may have that wrong. And the title of the novel is like it's been translated. If I can look it up real quick, I'll, I'll I'll be able to tell you here. China science fiction novel. It's called uh, the Three Body Problem. So three volume set. Apparently, it's really long. It's available in English. I mean, if I've always had, kind of had it on my list to to read, but you know, I'm not a China expert, so it's not, not like I I really must read it. But science fiction and art in general is often kind of an advance. It's kind of the leading edge of cultural change. Now, if you think about 
at the start of the 20th century, we had all this more abstract painting and uh, abstract art. And I, I think it may have forecast sort of all the turmoil that occurred in, in the world in, in the 20th century. So if you are interested in China and you really want to learn about it, you need to read uh, their books. It's a problem because they're not uh, often translated. I liked, I like a blog a lot. It's called Reading the China Dream. Reading the China Dream. And it's an academic, an American academic somewhere. I think he's in New York State. And what he does is he scours the uh, Chinese journals and finds the interesting articles and translates them. So it's the Chinese talking about themselves. I think that's that's just a huge thing to read. Yeah, and then kind of tying this into working with analysts, how do you incentivize your analysts to, to find these articles or these books and to kind of take the time away from what they might perceive as their job and their work as an analyst to read these books? How well, I think that you need to make clear that it's, that, that you think of it, if you're their manager, as part of their job. This is not extracurricular stuff, right? Now, let's face it. Nobody's going to become an expert on whatever their responsibility as an analyst is if they just do the 40 hours a week that they're being paid for. So we all know that if we become passionate and really interested in a topic, we'll take some of our discretionary time and invest in it. But managers shouldn't expect that all the time. So when I was the chief of the South Africa branch, Friday afternoons were often movie afternoons. And I, a wonderful movie about South Africa came out, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Probably have never seen it, but look it up. It's, it's really a fine movie. It was made in South Africa by South Africans. Uh, and so, you know, that was the signal, you know, we sp we're going to spend from two 30 on watching our movie on Fridays. Um, and I, I, I really, you know, if, if an agency can give you three hours a week to exercise in a gym, it, you know, why shouldn't it give you three hours a week to, uh, 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 you know, there's that phrase, sharpen your saw to read and invest in your overall appreciation of the issue that you're working on. Most definitely. So we know you talked a lot about reading and engaging um, with the community that you're um, analyzing and providing intelligence on. And we also know that the Marine Corps um, disseminates a book list every year. Um, it's kind of from the top down. Could you see the CIA implementing like a similar initiative of like general books that help understand the human I, you know, I think that would be a great idea. And of course, you know, the, the world is so complex that there's no way you could, you know, recommend an all-encompassing book list, you know, but every mission area, you know, the people who work on China, the people who work on Russia, they all need to uh, share ideas about books to read and movies to watch and art, art to go see. That That's just all so important because... You know, we get into trouble, the U.S., when we stereotype other countries and simplify what they do. And 
the way you avoid that is by just constantly learning about them and appreciating their nuances. In terms of kind of having this book list within the CIA, are there any like recommendations that you would say for specific branches, maybe in South Africa, um, that would really enhance an analyst's understanding of the region? Well, you know, we've been talking about the books about their part of the world, right? But I, I will just say another thing, that there are all sorts of other fields where there are insights that help you be a better analyst. So uh, anthropology, right? Cultural anthropology, sociology, and, uh, you know, uh, psychology for sure. And there are all sorts of, there's just so much literature and research that comes out about the human condition. And I, I know the average stereotype of a CIA analyst is, is, is not that they would be reading, you know, Aristotle every once in a while, but it should be. Uh, we, we should do that kind of thing because in the end, everything is about people. So my kind of uh, very simplistic thing, view that I've had of the world since I was like a teenager was everything is about humans. It just scales, it just keeps scaling up. So, you know, whatever your dynamic is in a family, just take it all the way up and, uh, uh, and, and that dynamic, you know, kind of, ex, you know, exploded will be the dynamic of a country. And, you know, a really good movie every analyst should see, every aspiring national security professional should see is Death of Stalin. I saw, I, I love that movie as a, an example. And it's, it's much, although it seems outlandish, most of what it depicts more happened more or less as they described it. And it gives you an idea of how interpersonal dynamics uh, affected this very important transition in the history of the Soviet Union. Well, I know I'll definitely add it to my list. Yeah. And we also know you're a big reader. Have you read any books um, that kind of have that same benefit that the movie did? Uh, I know you mentioned not today, but when we talked last time about a book called In Search of Lost Time and the impact. Oh, yeah, Marcel Proust. He's huge. In fact, you know, there's a fantastic book that I uh, have been reading all my life. It's because it's 6,000 pages long. <laughs> and it's called In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And I've kind of, I'm down to the last 200 pages. And it's almost like a superstition that I don't read it. Not, I haven't finished it because I think it might. I don't know, like my 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 time on earth is over if I finish reading it or something like that. But um, in that book, it's the study of France. Well, it's like a memoir, but it's the study of French society from uh, well, about 1890 to just after World War One. And every kind of person in it, it, it this guy was a fantastic kind of wacky observer of human nature. And he captures every type of personality. It's so interesting. 
And uh, I think that's probably the most impressive piece of fiction I've ever read. And, and I, you know, I really think, you know, I just think if you're going to work for the CIA and the intelligence community, you should be able to talk about a book that has really shaped your thinking about human nature. And if you can't talk about that, then there's something missing in your education and, and you need to rectify it. Well, I think that's a perfect place. Yeah, it's a perfect place. Perfect place to pull our conversation together. And yes. We'd like to thank you so much for your time. Um, we're so grateful that you could share your insights with us. And we're sure that our Endis fellows in the larger Notre Dame community have learned a lot from um, your perspectives and your remarkable life story. So yeah. thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, you guys. And uh, have a have a wonderful spring and summer. Thank you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you so much for meeting with us. Yeah, and I'm will... taking the time. Yes. Yeah. No, this is my pleasure. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash. Or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.